As we continue our sermon series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, I'll ask that you turn to Matthew chapter 7, and this evening we will be looking at the first six verses of chapter 7. You'll find that if you have a pew Bible on page 812 in your pew Bible. So the title of this is To Judge or Not to Judge. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. The word of God says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Lord, again, speak to our hearts concerning this text. Amen. Now, there is no doubt in the mind of anyone who has been around for a few decades now. We might have once lived in a nation and a society that was guided by a Christian ethic, but that is no longer the case. There used to be a time when you could turn your television on to watch a baseball game and you would see a sign, John 3.16. And the, the interesting thing, the amazing thing, is the cameramen always seem to find that sign. That is no longer the case. Everyone knew what John 3.16 was. It was the most famous verse around. Today, that verse has been replaced with what is here, our first verse. Judge not that you be not judged. Some know the verse but they don't even know where it comes from. They don't even know it's the Bible, but they know how to say it. Judge not has turned into a famous short sentence. Don't judge me. Or perhaps you've said something to someone and they responded with, you're judging me. So in the face of this sort of accusation and the assertion that comes with it, that is, no one has the right to judge anyone Many Christians have either adopted the popular understanding of the day concerning this verse or the way it's phrased in the common vernacular of our day and as such either shrink back into the shadows when they see or hear something amiss or out of accord with scripture or they engage in the exact opposite behavior, the behavior that we'll see here, the behavior that Jesus is alluding to here. So how are we to understand, in light of all this and the text, how are we to understand this passage? Are we to judge or are we not to judge? Are we to come to conclusions concerning how others behave or do we have a duty to act or not? Let's try to answer these questions uh, this evening. Now before I move along, it's important to remember that this passage, the entire Sermon on the Mount, for that matter, has as its backdrop an undressing of the hypocritical ways 
and teaching of those who were in religious leadership in that day and age. The Pharisees and scribes had developed their own standards of religion and morality, and when that happens, those who develop those standards must then judge everyone by those same standards. And that's exactly what they did. Over a course of several centuries, these men whom Jesus referred to as sons of the devil reconfigured God's word to suit their own thinking, their own inclination, bents, and their own abilities. It was so bad that at the time Jesus came on the scene, their teaching and tradition had actually replaced the authority of the scriptures in the mind of those who followed them. It sort of reminds me of the Catholic uh, faith where what the Pope had said was on the same par as scripture. They literally became the, the arbiters of what was righteous and what was not. And inevitably when this uh, becomes the case, uh, when a fallen sinner takes on the mantle of righteousness or better stated, self-righteousness, they will look down on everyone else who does not meet the standard they have set. It's human nature. We compare ourselves with others and thus deem ourselves to be worthy of acceptance while they are not. That's why so many folks in our society today have adopted the view that if I do 51% good, I'll make it to heaven. Question is, how do they arrive at the 51%? I'll tell you how. Listen to this account that we've been visiting and revisiting on a somewhat consistent basis lately. It's Luke 18, verses 11 through 14. You know it as the Pharisee and the publican, and Jesus is the one that's speaking here. He also told this parable to some who trusted, listen to that, in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, Jesus says, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here through the use of this Luke 18 passage, Jesus is clearly telling us that we should not adopt a posture of self-righteousness, nor are we to look down at others in a condemning manner. That, however, is exactly what the Pharisees did. So question, so the question here is, are we then, through what Jesus said in Luke 18 and here in our passage, to reason that we should never evaluate or criticize anyone for anything? Is that the testimony of Scripture? Here's where we once again run into the pendulum of humanistic thinking. We don't stay steady as an oar. We move from one way to the other. Some who call themselves Christians tout the notion that doctrine divides and what we should be focused on is love, compromise, and, and unity. Everything else must go. You accept everyone and everything. Everything goes. Everything except 
judging others. Commenting on this phenomena, one scholar wrote, in many circles, including some evangelical circles, those who hold to strong convictions and who speak up and confront society and the church are branded as violators of this command not to judge and are seen as troublemakers or at best as controversial. So these folks, society and many in the church say, are out of line, violators we are, who must go. But again, I ask, does the scripture support such a position? My answer is unequivocally no. Dean, how can you say such a thing? To which I point you to scripture itself. Right here in this very Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls for us to do something act akin to judging, not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. We are to make every effort to judge between truth and falsehood, between that which is external, hypocrisy, and that which is internal, between reality and a sham, between true righteousness and false righteousness, or rightly defined God's way and all others. If we're not to judge, for instance, then why are we warned to beware of false prophets in Matthew 7, 15? How are you going to know they're a false prophet? You have to be able to judge. You have to be able to know. Don't we have to come to some sort of conclusion that the person is either true or false from God or not God? In Matthew 18, we're told if your brother sins against you, go to him. How, how are you going to do that? How do you come to the conclusion that he or she has sinned? Again, listen to Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Oh, the word doctrine. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And how about 1 Corinthians 5.11, which says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Woo, don't judge them. Not even to eat with such a one. Well, how are you going to stop eating with them unless you first come to some sort of uh, decision that they are one of these things? Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Okay, so we're not judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Fact is, time and time again, we see in Scripture a call to judge. The last passage even uses the same word we find here in our text. So now the question becomes, if we are to judge, what's going on here? I'm glad you ask. Here's where context is very important. Remember what I said about the Pharisees and what they did. They established their own standards. But is that what I've been doing when I recounted for you what the scriptures tell us concerning judging? Am I talking about any standard that I have set? Or did I read the word of God to you? The imperatives that are in scripture. The answer concerning that is no, you've been hearing God's standard, his word on the matter. So based on what I've said thus far, based on that, we can rightfully reason that what Jesus is forbidding here is self-righteousness, hasty, unmerciful, prejudiced, 
and unwarranted condemnation based on human standards and human understanding. And he gives three reasons here why that type of judgment is sinful. So let's flush those out together under three headings. An improper view or understanding or view of God, an improper understanding or view of others, and an improper understanding or view of ourselves. So first, there's an improper understanding or view of God. Verse 7-1 tells us, judge not that you be not judged. The type of judgment that Jesus is referring to here uh, is unrighteous and unmerciful. It's an unrighteous and unmerciful judgment that is forbidden because it puts us, it puts you in the seat of God. Here the Pharisees are being told that they are not the final court, a mantle they had wrongfully taken upon themselves. Who are you to judge the servant of another? We hear the Apostle Paul saying in Romans 14.4. Paul himself couldn't care less about how others judged him. Listen to what he's saying. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I am not standing in the place of a self-righteous person. I am not saying because I don't see there is nothing. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5. In James 4, 11 through 12, we hear these words. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But again, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now notice, as we've been saying here, that the reason the judgment found in the text is wrong is because it sets us up as God. And only God is rightfully the judge. Remember I said that the Pharisees passed judgment based on their own abilities and inclinations. And so whenever we assign people to condemnation without mercy because they do something the way, they didn't do it the way we thought they should have. Or because their motives in our mind are, is wrong, we pass judgment and only God is qualified to make. So the bottom line here is we're not called to cease examining and discerning in accordance with God's standards. But we are to renounce holding people to our standards and expectations. When we remove ourselves from being in God's place, we will be in the proper space to discern according to his will and his way. The second reason the type of judgment being referred to here in our text is sinful is because it entertains an improper understanding or view of others. Verse 7, 2 tells us, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, remember the context. 
The Pharisees thought they were superior to everyone else and thus were deceived into thinking uh, they perfectly measured up to God's divine standard. The problem was that standard they set was purely a human standard that was far short, fell way short of God's holy and perfect law. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None, there's none righteous, no, not one. The more we think that we are righteous, the more we're deceiving ourselves. Our righteousness is only that which comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus tells them that God will judge them with the same type of judgment that they're judging others by. You ask, why is it that, why is, why is that a bad thing, Dean? That, that means that the standard will be easier to achieve. If, they're, if they've lowered the standard all the way down here so that they can meet it, and now God is going to judge them by that standard, doesn't that mean that all of a sudden it's easier? Well, the answer to that is that would be the case if that was the case. But what's going on here? You see, you have to consider that what he's actually saying is since, remember, they had no mercy, he wouldn't be extending any to them. Since they were merciless, that's the way that God would judge them in a merciless fashion. They would not receive any mercy. In addressing this issue, one scholar wrote, when we assume the role of final omniscient judge, we imply that we are, all, that we are qualified to judge, that we know and understand all the facts, all the circumstances, and all the motives involved. Therefore, when we assert our right to judge, well will be, we will be judged by the standard of our knowledge and wisdom we claim that we claim is ours. If we set ourselves up as judge over others, we cannot plead ignorance of the law in reference to ourselves when God judges us. This is the same principle James had in, has in mind when he wrote, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Listen, God has no double standards. In criticizing unjustly or, or condemning unmercifully, we play God and give the impression that we ourselves are above criticism and judgment. But God has not set, appointed, he has not appointed or set anyone in his throne, in his place. He is the only one that can judge like that. None of us have that mantle, and we dare not take that mantle upon ourselves. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And we are, by the way, a lot closer to the Pharisees than to the publican. So we, others are not under us. We are to keep in mind that others are not under us. And to think so is to have a wrong view of them. To be gossipy, tattletale critical, and judgmental is to live under the false illusion that those who we are judging are inferior to us. That type of judgment tells us boomerangs back on us. You know, one of the, the, the temptations that you have when you're in ministry is, you know, you, you hear all kinds of stuff that's going on in people's lives. Some, I mean, some just atrocious things going on in, in other people's lives. And, and so there's a temptation to feel or to think that you have it together and and they don't have it together or you are, are more achieved. And the same thing in, in, when you deal with socioeconomic statuses and, and everything else, there is this temptation to feel that we're better than others, that we've achieved more. And so 
we are at a higher level of dignity and honor and everything else. But here, we're being told that is not the way God sees things. And that's why he could look at a publican who had his head down and say that he was justified and another person whose head was up and bragging about all the tithing and all the good things that he was doing. But it was nothing in the face of God. This brings us to our third sinful error, and that's an improper understanding or view of ourselves. So all of verse 3 through 5a, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, you know. In this sermon series, there were four sermons on hypocrisy with the word being called hypocrite, and I preached three of them. I don't know what God is saying to me, <laughs> but anyhow, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's the thing here. When we judge critically in the sinful, pharisaical manner that's here, we also demonstrate an improper understanding of who we are. Here I would note that all three of these vices are connected. When we have a faulty understanding of God, it's natural that we will have a faulty understanding of others and a faulty understanding of ourselves, and for that matter, a faulty understanding of everything. An interesting thing to note here is this speck in the eye. We often associate this speck, you know, for many people think that this speck is like a little dust in the eye or, or something minuscule like that. But the proper understanding of the original word as it's translated here should be something like a, a small stalk or twig or a splinter. Although it's small compared to a log, it's not an insignificant object. So what Jesus is actually saying here is the person has a large object in their eye, but you have one that is gigantic, and that matches the fact that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that none of us have any hope save but through Jesus Christ, all of us. But the person that you're looking at, the object of your vitriol, the object of your criticism, that person actually has a smaller object in their eye. Hence, the publican had a smaller object than the Pharisee. The Pharisee has a humongous, humongous object. And you know what that object was? Self-righteousness. The absolute greatest blinder one can have with regard to gross sin is self-righteousness. And that is the one sin that Jesus, if you remember, could, I mean repeatedly condemned the Pharisees and scribes for. Not only here in the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout his entire ministry, among them, they had an unbelievably foggy picture of who they were and thus were completely useless towards the things of God, uh, particularly here in the area of helping others. This kind of blindness relegates one to a life of hypocrisy. You, you don't have any op no choice but to be a hypocrite because you can't see the things of God. You can't orient yourself in that way. And so if you try to act religious, you'll do so without true guidance. 
You are not one that can say, I rely on the guidance of God. I do not lean on my own understanding. No, you set your own standards, and that is how you're holding people. So this kind of blindness relegates one to a life sentence of being a hypocrite because one cannot even see or discern the need to repent. So what is the answer? How are we guided in this manner? What does Jesus say to us? We who are judgmental, critical, pharisaic in mind, and might I remind you that that's all of us at some point, must return to the beginning of this sermon. We must resort to being poor in spirit. A person who is poor in spirit recognizes the object poverty of their soul, the sin, the dead man that hangs to them even when they're saved and they are des desperately holding and clinging to Jesus and depending on him and his spirit day by day. We're humble. Be those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. That humility and recognition of God's sovereignty will result in us mourning over our sin. Remember Jesus said, blessed all those things. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who mourn because they will be comforted. That's what the publican was doing in the temple. He was mourning over his sin. And then we will be, when we get to that place, when we humble ourselves before the God who created us, and who's called us to himself. When we do that, then he will come to us. For as the scriptures declare, God resists who? The proud. But he gives grace to who? The humble. And so it is the humble that God will indeed extend his mercies to. Those mercies that are renewed each and every day. It is to them that he will grab hold of and hem them in. As Psalm 139 says, it is to them that he will be a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But to those who are self-righteous, he will resist. So to render the type of judgment that causes growth and the well-being of all involved, we must render those judgments through the lens of God's word, recognizing that we are not God. And that we are called to discern for the purpose of walking with our Lord, not for the purpose of standing on any type of throne and judging and condemning others. And believe me when I tell you, we are very good at it. If you've never been in one of those, we need to pray for so-and-so because so-and-so, and in your heart of hearts, you know, they're a part of you that are thinking that you're here and they're there and all of this sort of stuff. You know what, if, if you're not experiencing that, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you're really guilty, guilty, but the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I'm telling you that if the scripture tells us to beware of being a certain way, to, to, to take heed to yourself, then guess what? We need to be taking heed and listening carefully to that. We need to absolutely stay before the throne of God. Now, Jesus ends this teaching on human relations. That's what this whole thing is about. 7 through 12 is going to be our human relations. He ends this teaching on human relations by providing some very important instructions. Do not give dogs what is holy. 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You know, those, many of us in here, you know, I have a little dog about this big named Dory. Everybody in my house name is D, by the way. In case you forget, just call us a D name and you'll be fine. But the dogs in those days, there were no domestic dogs, so to speak. The dogs in those days were rabid. They were running around and would attack you and, and stuff like that. They were just, you know, just atrocious animals, if you will, in that day and age. And the pigs, of course, you know that the Jewish uh, people were told not to eat pigs. And so it was abhorrent to them. And so likewise, there was no, you wouldn't walk around and see a pig. You know, nowadays people have pet pigs, little porcupine or whatever they call them in their house. But then it would have been something that was completely abhorrent. Not, you couldn't even imagine it. And so these pigs also walked around in slop, worse than the pigs you see in slop today. And they would also even attack you. Okay? So Jesus is saying here, do not give dogs what is holy. So now when the people went to the temple and they sacrificed, some of the meat would go and the, 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 the religious leaders would eat some of it. Some of it was when the word holy here was set apart, set apart for the sacrifice, and some they would take home. So the portion that was set apart for God, that is a portion that we're talking about here. Do not give dogs. Those who are, and so the, the analogy that Jesus is using here is those who are completely, adamantly rejecting the things of God that you would share with them. Again, how do you know that if you don't judge, if you don't discern? You have to be able to judge it to discern, to recognize. And so you see in Scripture when Jesus sent out the 72 by 2, he told them if people reject you, shake the dust off of your feet and keep moving. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts hearts. We are to give an answer for the hope that's within us at every opportunity that we have. But when we come across people who are adamantly against the word of God, who are adamantly against the work that you do in the name of Christ, we are not supposed to sit there and try to share with them. They will turn around and they will rip you apart. And there are some people who don't love Christ, who hate Christ, hostile towards Christ, who know the word more than you. You do know that Satan knows the word more than you, right? And in those instances, you are called to discern and to walk away, to pray that God would have mercy and that he would send, that maybe you've left some seeds there that sometime or the other, God would have mercy on them and draw those individuals to himself. So once again, one has to judge or discern to arrive at the conclusion that these individuals are not open to the things of Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus is saying to us here this evening. Do not stand in the seat of self-righteousness. Absolutely, we are called to discern. Absolutely, we are called when we go, when I go to the General Assembly, you better believe when they start talking about this side, the issue, and all the other things that I'm going to be sitting there trying to discern the will of God. And, and those who 
would stray from what God has said and what God wants, you better believe that I will be judging those particular things, discerning whether or not those things are wrong. You better believe that when Matthew 16 uh, talks about the keys to the kingdom and those that are in leadership in the church have to make decisions concerning the people that they're shepherding, that we are indeed called to make judgment calls. And you know if you're in leadership or if you've engaged with leadership, you know that that is the case. But let us strive to walk humbly before our God, to love kindness, right? And walk humbly before our God, knowing that he is the ultimate judge, and when the time comes, he will make all things right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this word that you've given us this evening. Uh, this is indeed uh, in this age where we have the, what they call now the psychological man, the people who said what they feel inside is what reality is and not your word, uh, the people who therefore would hide under the mantle of do not judge. Uh, even we ourselves, when we want to fall into those categories, we pray, Lord, that you would guide our heart and guide our thinking. Uh, we think of Solomon who asked for wisdom, not so that he would become wise or so that he could become rich, but so that he could govern your people, so that he could interact well with others. We pray that you would also give us that wisdom so that we can discern, Lord God, how to discern the things that are not of you and how to discern when we are trying to sit upon a throne that is not ours. We repent of those instances when we've done just that and ask that you would lead us in your paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, guide our hearts in dealing with this particular issue from moment to moment, from issue to issue, from day to day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.